I lived in New Hampshire for a while, and I'm Jewish. Um, being Jewish in New Hampshire was kind of difficult, you know? A lot of the kids started trouble. Some of the kids, anti-Semitic, used to throw pennies at me. But uh, I saved those pennies. And uh, now I have my own business. Asked him for $100,000. He offered 50. I was like, yep, I'll do it. And that's the first time I opened up my own business. When the customer walks in, can I help you? No, I'm just looking. No, you're not. You're here to buy something. Why else would you be here? One thing I do in sales, which helps me be successful, is I... Well, you know, the one thing I learned through this whole process through wrestling is that all the guys who didn't quit ended up being successful. The big guys on the street, you know, they're paying $10,000 to run a TV commercial. I'm doing Craigslist for free and I'm reaching more customers than they are. So it was free marketing to be able to sell my product and really compete with those guys. Sounds good. Well, my name is Trevor Varney. I am the owner of Next Ride. We're a motorcycle dealership in Tampa, Florida. So I'm in the automotive slash motorcycle industry. I've been doing it for 10 years. I own two locations. I own five. I've done close to 50 million in revenue over the last 10 years. It's been growing pretty rapidly. I am the motorcycle guru. If there's anything motorcycle related, I know about it. This is my business. I like to think I'm one of the top guys in the country at what I do. And so what makes your story a little bit special? The more I tell my story, the more I kind of learn about myself. And when I used to tell it, a lot of people, you know, last speaking engagement I did, the kid asked me, he's like, oh man, you're really lucky. And I'm learning more. It's not luck. It's not an accident why things happen. And I don't think I gave myself enough credit for just being emotionally intelligent and being able to figure things out. I thought I was just like a hardworking kid who put my nose down and just didn't take no for an answer. But there's a lot more intelligence that goes into it. And I'm learning that every day as my business continues to grow. Yeah, because I think as also an entrepreneur, you don't want to take like credit for things that you might even be good at because you just want to keep thinking about what you could be better at. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's just difficult for people to take credit for things. And you'll probably find only successful people say that because there's probably a lot of people who take credit for what I do that are no longer here, no longer work here. I would say I hear employees all the time or people like, I built this whole business or I've done this for you. But I'm like, you've been here six months. I've been doing this 10 years. So people don't understand. And just because the business has been here, the grind was really the 30 years before I started the business of my life that built up to opening that business that made it successful. And you say you have uh, two locations in Tampa, Florida? Yep. I've got one in Clearwater, one in Tampa. It's called Next Ride. It used to be called Next Motorcycle, just so we're on the same page here. Yep. We're now Next Ride. I'll kind of go through the story. We started off as Buy Here, Pay Here Motorsports. Then we went to Next Motorcycle, and now we are Next Ride. Okay. As you can figure out, you probably found me on the Inc. 5000. I think we were number 848 for fastest growing business in the country in 2016. We went from 1.3 million in revenue to 13 million in two years. So with that growth, obviously you're just going to have lots of changes. I own five stores here and then and also in Los Angeles. And now I'm back down to just the two in Florida. You mentioned about 13 million in revenue. Can you give us an idea of like what last year's revenue was and the employee count to give us an idea of how big your company is? In 2016, when we did the Inc., I had 57 employees at one time and 13 million in revenue. This year, we're closer to 15 and 6 million in revenue. And I guess, should we start back to kind of how you got here? Because again, part of what made your story a little bit different isn't just this business aspect. I don't believe there's something else as well. Yeah. So the more I think, and I tell my story a lot, and I do lots of speaking engagements, mostly I've done it for third and fourth graders all the way up to MBA students at the, at the University of South Florida. I like hitting the third and fourth graders with the same stuff I hit with the older kids. And honestly, they have a lot of the same questions. The kids now, they blow my mind with the questions they have at third and fourth grade. So that shows you how simple a lot of this stuff is. A crew running a business is kind of like having a diet. Like most people are educated. They know how to eat. They know how to work out, but do they do it? Yeah. And I think a lot of people try to overcomplicate their business. If you just make it simpler, I think it's much easier 
easier to understand for your employees and make sure everyone's on the same page versus everyone, I think, tries to make their job sound a little bit more difficult than it is just to make them sound smarter. But really, when you break it down, I think it makes it easier for everyone to understand what you actually do. Yeah. And that's difficult for me to accept as the business is more successful and the revenue is dropping, but the net profit's up. And that's a big difference. I don't think most people understand the difference there. No, it's important. I definitely want to hit on that because I use revenue because it's easy. People don't mind like diverging as much, but really at the end of the day, if you've got a $10 million revenue company, but your expenses are 10 million, a hundred thousand, then you know, you're, you're negative. Losing money. <laughs> so that's what you need to be able to actually make money because that's how you're going to stay in business. But unfortunately, in the world we live in now, a lot of people get a lot of credit for businesses that lose money. Yeah. Especially if you have intellectual property or technology, that type of business, you know, there's a lot of businesses that lose lots and lots of money and they stay open for years and people get a lot of credit for running successful businesses when, you know, I guess you can look at it both ways. If they're paying the bills and they're running a business, good for them. But for me, I'm really working on a keep it small, keep it all kind of platform. And before we guess we rewind it to kind of how you started the company and maybe even before that, how do you actually make money today? We just buy and sell motorcycles. It's a very simple process. What makes us successful, and which I don't mind telling, a long time, I didn't want to tell exactly you know, what our method to our madness was that makes us successful. And then what I quickly realized, it's easy. I watched American Gangster. You ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. But tell us, especially anyone who hasn't. Denzel Washington, he sells drugs. I've seen it. Yeah, I definitely have. Yeah. Okay. He has a better product at a better price in the competition. I mean, that's what we do. We have a better product, better quality, better price. You know, if you just do everything better, you're going to be successful. And uh, the reason I don't mind telling people that, because that's not easy to do. Yeah. It's easy to come up with the idea. Like how easy was it for you just to say that, but then to actually implement that obviously took years and years to try to get it to where it is today. Right. And I'm still working on that every day. And back what we were just talking about, that's difficult for me now to like enjoy free time. As the company runs better, I have more free time and I'm not working 10 and 12 hours a day. But in my head, I want to because that's what made me successful. And now it's like, well, the business is running good. What should I do today? Like, I guess I should just let the employees continue doing what they're doing because it's successful and stay out of their way and let the businesses, you know, it's turned itself into a machine and it's running itself now. Yeah, I think that's what all of us strive to do. So I guess, I don't know if you want to bring it back to school where you said you maybe you weren't a good student and tell us along your journey of how you got here. Yeah, I like to tell people, you know, that I was a DNF student. I barely passed. But the thing that I always forget to mention, or I don't give myself enough credit, was I was able to make relationships with teachers. They liked me and they passed me. I think that's really relevant in how I built my business. You know, if people like you, they will give you a better grade. It's not just about what you put down on that piece of paper. If they don't like you, they're going to make your life more difficult. So I kind of talked my way through school. I got into the easier classes. I got the better teachers and I passed. Since the age of probably 12 or 13 years old, I decided I wanted to be a professional wrestler for WWE. And I don't know if that possibly was the reason I didn't do as well in school because I didn't need school. I needed to learn how to body slam, not do math. So I kind of had a different career path. And I followed through with that when I turned 18. That's the first thing I did. I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and I started training to be a professional wrestler at WWE school. Yeah. And so you actually fulfilled that dream. Most people, I think a lot of us might've had that dream when we were younger, but I guess you, even when you were younger, you're like, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure I'm able to do this. Yeah, yeah. It was never an option that I wasn't going to be a professional wrestler or a big star. Obviously that didn't come into fruition like I wanted, but all the things that I learned in the eight years that I spent being a professional wrestler kind of set me up unknowingly to be a successful entrepreneur because it's a very similar business. You work for yourself. WWE may pay you, but you are an independent contractor and you're 100% required to support yourself, your own business, whether that's tanning, whether that's lifting weights, whether that's being in shape, whether that's booking your own shows, hotels. I mean, you're in charge of all that. So you're running a little business in yourself. 
So what year did you actually end up doing that as far as moving up there and doing the W? In 2002, I was 18 years old. I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to wrestle. By I think the time I was 20, I started doing like what they call dark matches. You know, it's kind of what they do before TV to kind of warm the crowd up. Being a six foot one, 200 pound kid, I got beat up a lot. That was kind of the job. Because are you considered small at that size in WWE? Absolutely. I was told at 18, unless you're 6'4", 225, you'll never have a job here. I don't know why that didn't phase me. It probably should have because they weren't kidding. You know, to get a full-time job, that's literally was their requirement at the time. And a lot's changed since with WWE as a company. And now with drug testing being such a major factor, you know, all the wrestlers magically got smaller. So you, there are a lot of guys, colleagues of mine who are on TV now, who I used to wrestle with, who are my size and doing very successful. You know, the one thing I learned through this whole process through wrestling is that all the guys who didn't quit ended up being successful. I was on a television show up in Louisville, Kentucky for WWE, and they basically fired me and I moved to Florida. I didn't know at the time I was going to quit wrestling, but going through the entrepreneurial process, making money and building a career never led me back to professional wrestling. And what year did you fired? You said 2008. Okay. So you did it for about six years? Correct. Okay. So what are the other takeaways we could take from? Well, it's just the passion. You know, it's such a passion business. If you're willing, we get $250 for a dark match. Sounds like a lot of money, but I had to drive myself. So I would drive from St. Louis to Chicago for a show up to Detroit for a show on Monday, and then to Cincinnati for a show on Tuesday and back home. By the time you pay for your hotel, gas, sleep in your car, you know, whatever it takes, you're out of money. So you're literally doing it for no money. And that's best case scenario, because I'm wrestling in front of 20, 30,000 people in these big arenas. Worst case scenario, you're wrestling for 20 bucks in front of 100 people at an armory in the middle of Ohio. So there's a big spectrum. And if you're willing to do that, to follow a dream, it just makes life easier. So many people just quit or give up. You know, that's was never an option. So when you're willing to do anything for a job, it makes everything in life so much easier. And so I guess, was it a dagger to you kind of when you got fired? No, it was kind of expected. We were at that point where I was either going to continue to grow with the company or I needed to find something else to do. The one thing that was a little different about me, I wanted money and I wanted success. I wanted to wrestle for those reasons. A lot of guys who wrestle for the passion only. And unfortunately, that can keep you doing it for longer than you'd want to do it. And there were guys that I would like, man, they're still wrestling after all this time. And then say, you know, they're wearing the heavyweight title on Monday Night Raw. So, I mean, the guys that didn't give up have always either they made money or they made success or they found some way to continue living that lifestyle and doing what they want to do just by not giving up. So in 2008, you moved back to Tampa. You're 24 years old. I imagine you didn't have much money in the bank. I had a pickup truck, a 91 F-150. I drove it down to Tampa. I had all my things with a tarp over the top in the back. And I had $2,000 I saved up when I moved down here. I stayed at a friend's house. He was a wrestler. He was out of the country, Nigel McGinnis. And he let me live on his extra room while he was gone for three months in Japan on tour. And I just kind of floated around looking for work. And I was walking. You know, I had a whole lot of jobs. When you wrestle, you have to do other jobs. Wrestling isn't enough money to live on. So I would serve tables. So I was actually applying for a job at Longhorn Steakhouse and I walked past a motorcycle dealership. I didn't have a job, but I really wanted a motorcycle and I got approved for a loan. I didn't want to sign the paperwork without a job. They said they would give me a job. So I started working at the dealership. If you ever wanted to start your own online store, there's no better time than right now. E-commerce brings in over $500 billion in sales each year, and that's expected to grow to $1 trillion in the next decade. If you have a business or product idea, you need to be selling online. But maybe you're scared of how much time it'll take to code your own website or how expensive it would be to hire someone. Enter Volusion, the easiest and fastest all-in-one e-commerce platform designed specifically for small businesses. You don't need any coding or design experience. Imagine opening the online store of your dreams in minutes instead of weeks. What makes Volusion stand out? Well, you can get stunning 100% free themes 
built from the ground up with the best in-class design and SEO. You can drag and drop your products, manage your inventory, drive traffic to your site, accept credit card payments, and easily connect with your customers. With Volusion, it's easy to get started no matter your business. Then, take your sales to the next level with hundreds of free apps and integrations, premium shipping discounts, and in-house marketing and design experts that will help you find your target audience in no time. And with no transaction fees ever, our merchants make on average 2x more than on other platforms. What I like about Volusion the best is the overall clean look of the site and themes, plus the simple integration of other popular online tools. So come see why Volusion is the number one rated e-commerce platform according to Trustpilot. Get a free 14-day no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit volusion.com forward slash millionaire. And as a special for millionaire interview listeners, get 50% off your first month's plan with code millionaire. This is an exclusive discount available only for our listeners. Again, get a free 14-day no-risk trial. No credit card required. Just visit Volusion. That's spelled out V-O-L-U-S-I-O-N dot com forward slash millionaire. And it's a special for our listeners. Again, get 50% off your first month's plan with code millionaire. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment. And you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your online therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. BetterHelp is available worldwide with over 3,000 USA licensed therapists that you can talk with about any issues and anything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's truly an affordable option. Millionaire interview listeners can get 10% off your first month with discount code millionaire. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com forward slash millionaire. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com forward slash millionaire. Wow. So that's how you kind of fell into motorcycles or did you already like know a lot about motorcycles at that time? No, I just had a passion for cars and motorcycles. I always have. I grew up in the Midwest. Cars were everything in high school. Motorcycles were the coolest thing ever. So I've always wanted them. I always had a passion, but I knew nothing about the business. So I mean, I'm 25 at this point, probably with zero experience in the business, zero sales experience other than I just had a natural ability for it, but I didn't realize it at the time. And so tell us, I guess, about this working environment, how it's a little bit different from working at WWE. Yeah, uh, nine to six, getting yelled at. It's just a completely different, you know, I only dealt with it because I was making really good money. But if you remember what the economy looked like in 2008, 2009, 2010, it wasn't good. So I went from making really good money my first six months in the business to making no money because customers, they would come into the business to buy a product and the banks quit financing. So the reason the economy dropped isn't because people didn't want to buy motorcycles or why the business dropped. It's because people couldn't get financed for motorcycles. And that was a big key thing I took away. So there was another entrepreneur in town that opened a motorcycle dealer he was a real entrepreneur. You know, that's a big difference between you see these big franchise motorcycle dealerships. They're not entrepreneurs, they're business owners. And there's a big difference between that phrase. Anyone can buy a franchise, you know, building a business from scratch. That's what makes you an entrepreneur, in my opinion. 
And that's fine. Like I said, we like hearing the differences of like what you saw because you were inside a franchise. And so you can tell us what was the difference between this other guy's motorcycle shop that you're saying. Well, so if you're in a franchise, they're going to provide you with financing, albeit you're limited to what they want to offer. They provide you with vehicles. A truck shows up with brand new vehicles. You take them out of the wrapper and put them on your floor. You're provided with training. You're provided with signage. You're provided with advertising. They basically give you the business plan and you execute it. As an entrepreneur, I got to go out and find the inventory. It's all pre-owned. It's not given to me. I've got to train my own guys. I've got to make my own banners. I've got to do my own artwork. Literally, everything's up to you to figure it out. No one does it for you. So that's the big difference between the two. And some guys can take a franchise and run it really great and make a lot of money. It's not a disrespect thing. It's just one is much harder than the other. Why did you move over from, I guess you said no one could get financing at the dealership that you were at? So the entrepreneur figured out that if you finance them yourself, you know, buy here, pay here, the customers were still buying. You just had to provide that financing. So that's really where I learned, you know, kind of from a mentor, good and bad. He had a lot of really great business ideas. He knew how to create tons of revenue, but had a lot of personal demons and problems. I learned a ton from him on what not to do, but also the freedom that you can just do whatever you want. There are no rules in entrepreneurship. Well, yeah. Tell us both what you learned and what you learned not to do while you were at this. And what was the name of the new, I guess, entrepreneurship motorcycle? So that was Eco Green Machines. At the time in 2010, it was either a franchise dealerships or little bitty guys. And this was a pretty big dealership that did all independent. And he went out and he sourced his own motorcycles. He did his own marketing. He did everything. And in comparison, the dealership I worked at would sell around 180 bikes a month. When I started there, by the time I left, they were lucky to sell 60 or 70. That's how much the economy dropped. Here's a guy in the lowest form of the economy who's selling 200 units a month. I mean, he was building a really big business, but he made poor decisions. He was spending money before he got it. That was the biggest thing that I learned. He owed everyone money. Even when payroll came through, we would all run to the bank to try and cash our checks. When you buy the motorcycles from customers, he would not want to pay them on time. He would sell their vehicle and then not want to pay them. What I learned on that was he was still very successful. Everyone was mad at him all the time, but he's no longer in business because you can't sustain a business doing that for a long time. And sometimes you get jealous when people don't follow the rules. And I do that now, but I got to tell myself, following the rules keeps you in business for a long time. And I guess even at first, at least he saw in the beginning, what helped him stay in business or sell all those bikes was he was thinking differently by financing it. But in the long term, he, I guess he was hurting his business by doing these other things. Well, he worked there every day and he made instant decisions. He bought every single thing you could think of he would buy. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? There was no thought process. Like, I'll buy it, sell it. I would watch him buy stuff. Man, why would he spend two grand on that motorcycle? He'd sell for four grand the next day. Like the guy was just fearless and making decisions and executing, making money. That's what he was good at. But then, you know, you have a whole other side of the business and that's customer service and paying your bills and accounting. You know, he was a former drug addict, the owner. So he had like a, just a different mentality where he just went. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs replace drugs or alcohol with the energy spent into something else. So if you find an entrepreneur that was a former drug addict, you know, they're probably working hundred hours a day. <laughs> yeah. I guess just to take the mind off of whatever they were doing before and putting all their hours into the business you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you have to keep your mind busy so you don't go back to drinking or doing drugs. You said he was good at making money, which I think a lot of businesses actually have an issue with, but it seems like the dagger for him, again, was like customer service and then not keeping his expenses under control is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. He would pay everyone just a day late. It's just, why would you do that? You know, why would your ball be moving so fast all the time that you can't ever catch up? And so I sold the motorcycle when I worked there to an attorney. He was a prosecuting attorney in town and I ended up selling the bike for more money than he wanted to pay. And he's like, you're the best salesman I've ever had. Like, I don't pay more for anything, but you got me. You know, I took it as a compliment, very successful attorney. And so then I saw him out at a bar, you know, a few months later and he was like, Hey, how you doing at work? And I said, it's good. If I ran the place, it would be running much better. You know, at this point, I've been there two 
years. I've learned the process, what's right, what's wrong. And he's like, well, why don't you open your own business? I didn't have any money still. I mean, I was making 500 bucks a week on a good week. He's like, well, I have money. Look up a business plan and let's talk. So I don't think he actually thought I was going to, but I went home. I downloaded a business plan template. It was four or five pages. I wrote down all my ideas. We met up, asked him for $100,000. He offered 50. I was like, yep, I'll do it. And that's the first time I opened up my own business. And so what was your partnership, sir? That was interesting because I didn't know anything that I was doing. So I asked a friend to help. Typically in that situation, you know, you go to a friend like, hey, do you want to open this business with me? We'll be partners. When I went to the meeting with the attorney, this is very key. And it's one of the things that saved my personal relationship, but also saved my business. The other gentleman didn't go to that meeting. And the attorney said, we're going to do 50-50 me and you. I don't know him. And one person has to make decisions in a business. You can't have a partnership. So my 50 partnership will just be providing you the money and that's it. So I was 100% in charge of making the decisions and he was a 50% owner. I was the other 50%. And before we just go further about like you opening this business, how did you sell them on that bike? I wanted to know like how you, I guess, honed your sales skills. Because again, this is a important concept. If anyone hasn't started their business, their own first business yet, I think getting in sales is a great idea. But how were you able to sell him on this bike where he said he never pays more, but you're able to get him to pay more? Sales is 100% the field you should be in if you want to be an entrepreneur, because that's 100% what it comes down to. I always figured out how to follow the money. And when you're a server, the table you wait on is the one who tips you. So I figured out how to get more money from the person that I waited on, whether that getting their food on time, whether that meant being nice, charming them, whatever that took. I never really cared about the restaurant as to where most employees, you know, they're forced to do certain things at a restaurant. So that was like always the pro and con of myself is I always put 100% effort into where I can make money. You know, it came to selling motorcycles. I got paid a percentage of the profit. All of my effort went into figuring out how to get someone to pay more money. In that scenario, it's just building value and being honest. One thing I do in sales, which helps me be successful, is I find something in every product that I sell that I like so I can talk myself into wanting it and then it makes it easier for me to sell it. You know, I'm selling a product that people want. I don't know if I would be a great salesman at selling Bibles. Like I'm not that kind of salesman, but man, if you give me something I'm passionate about, you're going to be excited by the end of our conversation. So if you focus on the positive of whatever product you're going to sell, is there anything else? That's it. Just building value. And then, you know, the typical sales, don't let someone leave without buying something. What can I do to earn your business right now? Because the second someone leaves, your chances drop significantly of them ever returning. Okay. So that's another good tip, like close it while you can there. But how about specifically in this, I don't know if you remember, you saw on this motorcycle to your partner. I don't know if like how you're able to do that versus maybe another salesman, why they want to be able to get that profit. I don't know if I remember specifically. I personally try and get the person I'm selling to, to like me. So that way, when you get aggressive with them, you're not against them. I always use it like if you're selling something, you, you draw a line between you and the customer. A lot of sales guys talk back and forth over this line. I like to walk on the line and be on the same line as the customer and then walk them to my side. If that's a good analogy on how I try to do sales. So I'm building a relationship, I'm building a friendship, but I'm also a professional. People tend to forget being his friend isn't being his friend. I'm building value in that I'm an expert in my field. I know what I'm talking about. You don't. That's why you're going to trust me. All this happens within five minutes, by the way. This isn't an hour long process. So I've got five minutes to build value, show you I'm professional. I'm there to provide something for him. So in any sale, the customer wants something. My goal is to get that for him. Sometimes it's not that easy. You know, I don't know how many times you go to buy a car and the salesman makes it difficult for you. So don't make the buying process difficult. Make the process easy. Make yourself dependable. Make yourself professional. Let them trust your judgment. Make them like you. And then you'll find that the sale happens a lot easier. And when you were honing these sales skills, were you reading like books and stuff or trying different things? Or was it all just like you're out in the field figuring out? Because even some salespeople who maybe non-motivated ones, especially, I mean, I don't think they take the time to think about all this, but like, what did you do to hone your sales skills and how you got better at it? Well, I had a really good friend of mine who was a wrestler and he was really interested in meeting women. And he read a lot of books on this. 
engaging in women can be very scary for most men. Learning the process of how to engage in a female that you don't know and engage in a conversation is similar to selling a product, except you're selling yourself. So I spent a lot of time around him and hearing theories. He was a very intelligent person. I kind of took a lot of those skills of just being able to engage a female and make a conversation and be likable and apply that to sales. Yeah, no, I mean, I've read about all that. It's all the same stuff, right? Really, it's just like, even if you're trying to pick up a female, it's like, hey, it's the same skill of you trying to talk to a guy. You want to be likable. Like if they don't like you, like you've been saying, whether you're trying to pick up someone or you're in the business aspect, I think that came down to kind of the number one thing that you were saying, at least in the beginning. And then just working on slight ways, you might say something differently, right? To try to see if that helps. And I guess going back and forth to see, again, what honed your sales skills. Yeah. And you're persuading the conversation. You know, if I can get you to say yes three times, more likely than when I ask you to buy, you might say yes. There's like so many small, subtle things that, you know, I learned through that process that works so well with sales. You know, when a girl goes to a bar, she's probably going there to meet someone, even though she tells you she's not. And it's no different than the sales floor. When the customer walks in, can I help you? No, I'm just looking. No, you're not. (laughs) You're here to buy something. Why else would you be here? So how can I take your time, but make you know that I'm worth your time to then proceed through the normal sales process. So let's jump back to, I guess you striking the deal with the guy that you originally sold this motorcycle to your partner here, I guess it's 2010, you're about 27 or 28 years old. Yes. Okay. So yeah, walk us through there. You know, I already had a pretty good business model because I just kind of copied the one that I already worked at, except I just tried to do it better. $50,000 isn't a lot of money. And by the end of that first year, I had over a million dollars in sales off of that $50,000 loan. That doesn't include the $25,000 I spent first last month's rent, doing all the LLC paperwork, getting the dealership license, getting insurance. $25,000 of that went into just starting the company up. I had four motorcycles and 10 scooters when I started the business. So, you know, now I have 250 motorcycles. It's a great comparison. But before we jump to the end of year one, I mean, yeah, that's impressive what you said even happened by the end of year one. But how about like, how long did it actually take you to get this dealership started and all this other stuff? Because I didn't think about all this other paperwork as far as like the license, I guess, maybe to deal cars and all that other stuff. Yeah. So you need a license to be able to sell cars. That actually came in about three weeks. You know, the one thing I didn't think about was that every city has individual licenses when you have a retail store. So one of the big mistakes I made when I opened the first business, the walls were painted, the signs were up, everything was done. I didn't realize that cities move a lot slower. So to get my actual city tax license, fire code, all that has to be done. Sketches of the building, where your front door is, how many exit signs you have, passing the inspection. That actually held my business up by about three weeks. And that was pretty crucial at a time when I had very limited funds to get my business off the ground. Did you like buy an old dealership building? Like, tell us about that. Like all all these other little steps that maybe people don't think about. Luckily, it was at worst point of the economy when I started my business which everything was cheaper, but it also left me a lot of room to be successful that I might not have today. I think my rent was 1500 a month. I actually own that building now, but just purchasing it now, my rent's close to $4,000. So that tells you the difference if I wanted to open that business now to where back then with the economy being so bad, 1500 a month got me a pretty nice little prime spot. It was an old thrift store. We painted the walls. It was just such a different time And luckily, my partner being an attorney was always knew how to do things a little bit cheaper. And I ran an ad on Craigslist, $10 an hour looking for someone to do drywall. I had 100 people message me within 20 minutes. And that's really where I learned the power of Craigslist. And that's what separated my business over the big guys on the street. You know, they're paying $10,000 to run a TV commercial. I'm doing Craigslist for free and I'm reaching more customers than they are. So it was free marketing to be able to sell my product and really compete with those guys. Is this the one off Automato Drive? It's a building that you bought? 
It's the one on East Bay Drive. East Bay Drive. Okay. So if anyone looked it up, I was trying to see if it was on your website so people can get a look at Because I like visually looking at it. I mean, a lot of people are listening auditory right now, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you visually, especially the one on Adamo, my brand new store, it's 14,000 square foot, state of the art, beautiful building. It's much nicer than most of the franchise dealerships you go to because they're all the exact same. It's like going to Walmart. And I really took a lot of personal touches, red carpets, the lighting in my business is a specific color to make the motorcycle look better 6,000K as opposed to 3,000K where you're going to have a little bit of yellow in the light. I mean, every little touch, the way the music sounds and it hits you when you walk in the door is very specific. You know, all that has a sensory feel when you walk into the dealership and that's what's made us more successful. The smell when you walk in my dealership, every, every single aspect of it I care about. Yeah, these are the details that I think are awesome because these are things that maybe we don't think about. That actually reminds me, I was at a gas station I'd never gone to before. I was in Maryland and this gas station, you know how you might, if you're going in, you might have the chip aisles or the snacks or whatever, but they actually, you know what I'm talking about? If you just go in a gas yeah, station? Yeah. yeah. Well, normally you can tell the good ones, they try to make everything bright, right? They want you to see it, but they took it to another level where I even saw there was LEDs on the back of the, I guess, prices were. So it shine even off that and reflect off of it, making things look nicer and more appealing. So I guess these are the kind of little things that you even do now today that maybe, you know, retailers might not think about. Yeah, absolutely. And to that, everywhere I go, 100% of my mind is on running my business better. If I go to a gas station and I see LED lights on the price tags that make them look better, like you'll see that in my business next week. I weekly go to different car dealerships and motorcycle dealerships just to get when I hear slow country music, like nothing disgusts me more, but that's 90%. (laughs) I mean, it's just not exciting. I agree. Yeah. Because you just briefly talked about the music. So yeah, talk about that too. Because these things do have help. Yeah. So I listen to house music. It's not my favorite music. It's upbeat. There's no cussing and it's always high energy. So the second you walk in my dealership, it's, you you know, there's excitement. One out of 10 people might not like it, but it's such an unnoticeable thing. I like to think of music like a movie. So if I'm shooting a movie and the main character's walking into my business, what song do I want to play to give you that feeling? And so I constantly have a loop of all my 300 favorite songs that I think give me that feeling so that there's always high energy the second you walk in. I've actually never been to another motorcycle dealership or car dealership that does that. Again, it's these little details. Like you were saying when you're scared, maybe at first to say like what makes you better or makes you successful. It's these little things you could tell everybody, but did they take the time to go through those 300 songs like maybe you do? Or did they take the time to make sure they got the right LEDs like you're talking about? But why don't we talk about again, back to year one, kind of when you got started. I think that was smart. Like you went to Craigslist to get drywall people. Were you doing anything else? I mean, were you this specific on your first store with the lighting and music and everything? Probably not as much. I was just happy to have four walls. This is all stuff you just learn as you go. The biggest thing when I look back, part of the reason I think I was successful. So I did end up hiring the person that was going to be a business partner. And I was very clear. I'm like, hey, I can hire you, but you're not going to be an owner because the guy that gave me the money doesn't want that. But because of that dynamic, every single penny I spent was kind of judged because he was a friend who worked with me. And as well as the attorney, he didn't give me a check for $50,000. He gave me 10 grand. So get your dealer's license, go get your walls redone. I'm like, hey, I'm out of money. I need five grand. So it was a grind. But when I look back, the grind, I think, made me a lot more successful because it wasn't all given to me at once. And I had to earn everything. Even though I earned the $50,000, it wasn't given to me at once. And even though I earned the right to own the place and did everything I was supposed to, when I would show up with new shoes, I'd be like, well, where'd you get those new shoes at? You know, every penny I spent was judged. Who would say that your business partner or the guy that you hired? 
my friend that I hired because he wanted to be an owner. It didn't work out that way for him. He still joined on board, but he was, you know, very helpful in building the business, but it was constant struggle to separate, you know, the jealousy or whatever you want to call it of me owning the place and him not owning the place. And the difference was, you know, you would probably get a different answer from him, but I was there 10 more hours a week or working from home as to where he got to go home at six o'clock and be with his family. So I imagine that didn't work out long-term. It did not. It lasted about seven or eight years. Okay. Well, much longer than I would think because I could see that resentment because it, it just kind of stinks because even from the get-go, I guess starting off, if he was a good worker and stuff, like if he wasn't the owner, I think you're going to have that built-up resentment. It sounded like you even had it from day one. From day one. and I mean, it lasted that long because I told him, I said, you know, you're not an owner, but I'll pay you whatever I pay myself. And I did that the whole time he was here. And the guy was making six figures and had none of the stress to deal with. And I was really proud of that. And I don't think he appreciated it because if someone gets sued, it's me. If someone gets audited, it's me. If I got to make the difficult decisions, all you have to do is show up and you're making the same amount of money I'm making. Yeah. I mean, as being an entrepreneur, that's part of the things that you take on, right? Is that risk. Again, you're always trying to downside your risk and he's not really the entrepreneur. So he doesn't have all that risk. So, I mean, I think we can see it as business people who are listening. Like he probably doesn't realize how good he has. And then I guess it takes till you move somewhere else or till things don't work out that maybe people look back and like, oh, maybe it wasn't such a bad deal that I had. Yeah, I don't know if that'll even ever happen to him as much as for me, I felt bad until I got sued and until I got audited until, you know, he was already gone by the time these things started happening. But when you get audited, it's from three years previous. It's not from the year, you know, when the Department of Revenue is like, I mean, an audit takes a year. I spent a year going through the books and dealing with all his mistakes for when he was here, but he doesn't have to pay those ramifications. He didn't have to come up with the bill. If he didn't collect the 7% sales tax on a vehicle he sold, I have to pay that physically out of my pocket. So those are the more of those things that I went through, I started becoming a little less concerned about other people's feelings and looking out for myself. And I guess that was a few years, obviously, into the business when this happened. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we finish out year one as far as like, and then take it, I guess, year by year, if that's okay, of like how you grew it to where it is today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So year one, I mean, I sold the motorcycle the day we opened. So a lot of businesses, they'll tell you that, you know, they lose money for one or two years or, you know, I don't know, man, I couldn't do that. We made money the first day. You know, we weren't netting any, you know, I wasn't bringing home that money, but every penny we made went back into the business. I think our first month we sold 16 motorcycles and it just grew from there to 18 to 20 to 30, 40, 50 a month out of this little 3,000 square foot storefront. Business was good. As that business grew, we were doing a lot of business in Orlando. And if you're from Tampa, you know, it's about a two or three hour drive depending on traffic. So I thought I would kind of build a satellite store. You know, I'm kind of jumping to year three because, you know, the first two, three years was just showing up six days a week, open to close and a process. Buy, sell, trade, buy, sell, trade, deposit money, buy, sell, trade, deposit money. The one thing through this process over the three years that I did was I paid the attorney back his $50,000. And, you know, at this point, when the store started making money, I didn't want him as my partner anymore. Right. And he's smart enough. He's like, of course you don't. You're making money now. So he didn't want to sell because he saw the amount of money we're making, how well things are going. So it took a lot out of me to finally convince him to sell me his 50% of the shares. Overall, that $50,000 investment, I think he made about $300,000 in three years. Right. So a good return for him. Yeah. So, I mean, did you pay him over time, I imagine, as well, when you finally reached something that you wanted to be, I guess, 100% owner? Yeah. Once we got to about 200000 or about 180000 into him, we sat down and signed an agreement. I bought the shares for another $125,000, of which I made payments on. I actually got a loan from the bank for you know hundred grand, gave it to him, and then I made payments to the bank. Okay. Wow. All right. So just little ideas that people can come up with if you really want to buy out your partner. I guess if it's a successful business, is it easy to get that loan from the bank to do that? No, not at all. It was easier then than it is now, believe it or not. I actually applied for a loan with the same bank eight months ago and they like laughed at me. I'm like, I 
<laughs> I took a three-year, $80,000, $100,000 loan for three years. I paid it back in 12 months and I asked for like a $50,000 loan and they like denied me. And my portfolio is much stronger now than it was then. You know, lending's changed. It was a small credit union. Banking's a whole nother monster when you get open in a business. I always thought once I did more revenue and once I made more money that you would get more help and more respect, but it just doesn't happen. Well, it's kind of surprising. I think I would think the same thing as well. And at this time, you're about 30 years old as far as when you want to go ahead and buy back these shares from the attorney? Correct. Yeah. And this is where my business really takes a twist because from my first store to opening my second store is when I met my wife. And she's the first person I've ever spent a lot of time with who is extremely educated. I've always been, school sucks. School did nothing for me. You can't learn anything. She had her degree from the University of South Florida. She was very intelligent and she could really bring a lot of things. She brought a lot of the things to the table that I didn't have. So when you're selling yourself to her, you didn't use all that language, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like I said, if we're trying to pick up women here, just make it sure. Yeah, I know. Absolutely not. It was just one of those, you know, we met out. It was love at first sight. We spent day one together, day two together, and we're still together now. We just had a baby. So the reason I bring this up, because the cool part of this story that really made me successful is by year three or four, she started helping with the business. And as an entrepreneur, everyone tells you to you know, find people that can help do the things you're not good at. And everything that I wasn't good at, she was amazing at. And so we really made a great team. And probably sometime around 2015, when we opened up our third location, she came on board full time and quit her job to help run the company with me. So yeah, I guess that's a couple of years after y'all met when she came in full time? Yes. Okay. It brought a lot of respect to the business because she was pretty, she was intelligent, and she knew what she was talking about. Anyone that would meet her could pick that up right away. As you know, you're talking to me, I'm kind of raw. So I'll kind of jump back. So then we opened up kind of a small satellite store to be closer to Orlando. Again, it was another $1,500 a month, really small space. I hired another one of my really good friends to run it. The only reason I opened that second store was because of him. If you don't have the talent and the people around you to help, you know, this business is very difficult. So I opened the second store because of him. That one, same thing. We were making money day one. You know, now we've doubled our sales. So now we're doing 2 million a year in sales because I have two stores. Well, I got a question real quick if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So with that second store, can you just tell us what you did differently than opening up your first store? So again, things that you learned if we were going to open up a retail store. Again, you gave us some specifics before, but anything here that would help? No, I mean, I literally tried to do this. The process was working, so I tried not to change it. Right. That's smart. Again, some people try to change it and get overly complex. But again, it's a second store. So I guess, I don't know, that's a little bit different because you're not going to the location every day, right? Well, I was. It was only about an hour apart. Sometimes I think I opened the second store in part because I got tired of sitting in the same building every day, six <laughs> right. days a week. I mean, to be honest. I'm feeling you. I feel the same way when I like work from home. It's just like, you know, kind of just want to get another office just for fun. But then I'm like, yeah, just to leave and get out of the house. Right. Right. So I think a lot of us can understand that. I think even if you're own business in an office, you're like, might just be getting antsy after a couple of years. You just want to move to move because it'll switch your routine up a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was a big part of it. Well, yeah. Thanks for being honest about that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, definitely. Especially, you know, with the employee that I had that was my friend, it was kind of judged when I wasn't there. Like, oh, like, where are you at? Right. So opening the second store really gave me like, well, I'm at the other store today. So even if I want to go by the gym in the morning, I could say I was at the other store. And there's a lot of guilt and resentment from that. But at the end of the day, you know, I did obviously what I needed to do to make the business successful, whether I was at the gym in the morning or not, or whether I always try to put in more than anyone else. And that bothered me when people thought I didn't. Even today, People don't realize when they go home at six, I'll be at home working until midnight or 10 o'clock or I wake up at 6 a.m. to work. I don't have to worry about where I'm at at 9 a.m. just because you have to be at work. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, you always had that kind of guilt because I could see that too, especially if your original friend that you hired on kept kind of making digs at you like that. I mean, it'd be frustrating because again, like you're saying, 
they don't see all the other times you have to work on. You have the freedom to not work nine to five, really, if you wanted, but you're putting in more hours overall anyways, because you have to do all these other things. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess another thing is try not to feel guilty about any of it, if anyone's listening. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to solve that. I still do today. Right. You know, even I own the place, we got 15 employees and if it's raining out and the guys are pushing the motorcycles in, I'll run out and help them. Like I can't just sit back and let other people do that. It's something I'm working on to this day. All right. So yeah, you opened the second store. You said that's successful right away as well. So just walk us through that. We repeated the process, but obviously within three years of having the other store, we tweaked it. So when I opened this store, it was already tweaked to the best ability that the other store was tweaked to. And, and this is where the story gets real interesting now is we're doing in-house financing. We're really successful. I've got a big accounts receivable. We've got the sales and the economy starting to pick back up now. And more banks are starting to look into getting into loans. So this one bank in specific saw how well I was doing and how many loans I was doing and how successful my business was and they wanted in on it. So that's when I took on partners again and rebranded from Buy Here, Pay Here Motorsports to Next Motorcycle, more of a national chain. And our goal when we partnered up together was to open 100 locations. More my goal that they had the financial ability to help me get there because banks weren't lending that kind of money. They were a bank. They have a $100 million portfolio they were lending. I thought that would be the influx of money and cash that I needed to you know, start my business or you know, to grow to 100 locations. Right. And when you say partner, they're still just a bank. They're just the debt in there, right? Because you still 100%, maybe not quite yet, or did you? Yeah, during this time. So when we opened the third store, I sold them part of the business. The bank? Correct. The owners of the bank. Owners of the bank. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm like, the bank doesn't take that equity. Well, this is the thing I learned about banking is like banks don't have any money. So I can open a bank tomorrow. All the money comes from different people. So even when you go to Wells Fargo and you finance a house, your loan comes from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or it's always constant money moving. So Wells Fargo doesn't have any actual money. This is why it's so difficult to borrow money from these banks because they're not the ones that make the decision because it's not their money. The cool thing about this whole experience is now that my business partners are bankers, I'm learning the banking process. And I can kind of educate them on how I run my business because to be honest, banks run their side of the business very poorly to be able to help me sell more product. So I thought getting my foot in the door with the bankers by giving them half my business and agreeing to grow to 100 stores, you know, guys with this kind of access to capital was going to put us, make us a Fortune 500 company. I mean, that's really where I thought we were going. And what year was this? 2014. Okay. Yeah. So did you open the third store right after the second one? The third store is probably open six months when I started getting their attention. Okay. So that happened again, you're in your young thirties? Correct. Okay. So it seems like everything's going well if you brought on this partner and you say you met your wife. And that's right when my wife started getting more involved too. Right. You know, these guys are bankers. They're in their fifties. They live in Beverly Hills. Their bank was based out of Los Angeles. And when they met me and my wife, that my wife blew them away. Smart, pretty, intelligent. They're like, well, this big goofball over here can sell all these motorcycles and she's running things. I think we got a good combination. So I can't give her enough credit for helping us go from two stores, one store to two stores, because she was very instrumental in that, to then basically expanding across the country. Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting on a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything else it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. And as most of you business owners know out there, the right person can make an impact on your business for years to come. See, LinkedIn Jobs is a brand you can trust for finding the right candidates with the skills you're looking for by checking their verified job experience, which is something you don't always get on a resume. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to connect, learn, and grow as professionals, and discover new job opportunities. That's how LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of the people you want to hire, people with the right hard and soft skills you're looking for. 
Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you with the most qualified candidates. So you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. And guess what? A hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. With LinkedIn jobs, you can pay what you want. And the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So yeah, tell us what happened from there. Because I guess you didn't make it to 100 stores, obviously, yet. I don't know if anything went sour in this relationship. Yeah, it absolutely did. Okay. So tell us about that. I guess what ended up happening with this relationship? Well, my biggest advice is, you know, when you're young and my business is making money and we're growing and you meet people who own a bank who have a hundred million dollar portfolio, one, I did not realize that that was not their money. So you have to do due diligence on your partnerships. And it's easy to not want to do due diligence when you think you're the one on the bottom. Like I wanted money, they had money. So I didn't think to check if their money was real or if it was something that they had. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like, if you're a guy who's not very attractive and you meet a beautiful girl, you're like, yep, I'll take her, but you don't, maybe she's crazy. Maybe there's other things you should know about. And so that was really, they were a pretty girl and you know, they lived in Beverly Hills and he had a Ferrari and I thought they were very wealthy. And so I gave up half my business without doing a lot of due diligence. Turns out that you can fake having a lot of money and that hundred million dollars wasn't theirs. It was from another portfolio. So now I'm doing my portion, even though they're 50% owner, it's a similar concept. I'm 100% in charge. So we opened two more dealerships in California, my wife and myself. We literally packed three bags in a suitcase, flew to Los Angeles, found a place to live, rented a place and just started running the business again, just multiplying what we were doing. And we opened two stores in Los Angeles, one in Inglewood and one in Huntington Beach in 2014 to 15. And yeah, this is a big deal because obviously you're moving across the country too. Yeah. And you know, their bank was located in California and the biggest thing the bank offered was, you know, they financed motorcycles. So when they had repossessions, I could purchase those from them. So now I was getting to a point where I had access to the one thing that franchisees have access to a lot of vehicles. Now I was getting that opportunity. Okay. So it seems like a win-win when you're moving across the country and doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And they like to take us out and, you know, you're in Los Angeles and we thought they had a lot of money. And it turns out my Florida store success is what drove most of the financial success in those California locations. You know, I'd be to points where I'd be like, hey, we need 25000 for payroll. Oh, use it from the Florida stores. I'm like, well, that wasn't, you know, our, our agreement. You guys were supposed to pay for that. So this went on for a couple of years of just struggling to get money from them of any value to help grow the business like that. Their goals were not mine. And that makes sense because you got to make sure that your interests are aligned. Even if everything worked out, like you're saying, I guess they said they're going to give you money and they don't, but your good stores in Florida that you already had are keeping these stores afloat. It sounds like. Yeah. And well, they saw a kid who took $50,000 and did it, turn it into a million dollars in revenue to $2 million in revenue, thinking that they could give me a hundred grand and I would just repeat that process. And it's just not that easy. You know, even if I want to open my business again, like you're going to need a certain amount of revenue. And also as I go through, we need more employees. I can't be, when you have one store, I can be there every day and I can run it. Well, now I have four stores. I have to hire good managers. Payroll goes up. Like a lot of things change. I can't just sit there 10 hours a day and run the place by myself because they didn't want to give me money to hire good individuals. And so what happened? So eventually we came to a crossroads where they didn't want, I did borrow money for those stores. I don't know how many times, you know, 1.5 million was about the dollar amount needed to run the stores properly. And I borrowed about 500,000, basically sold the stores to pay them back the debt. And I moved back to Florida. And so was everything square with the, cause were they just owners of these new stores, like the 50% owners or over the whole thing? No, they owned all four. But when I paid back the debt, I got hundred percent ownership back in my stores here in Florida. 
Okay. Because I guess you're kind of fast forwarding as far as it, like this is two or three years of having to deal with this. Yeah, they want to be involved. And a lot of people want to open businesses for ego. You know, you look at the president, like the guy opens a new business every other day. He's got water bottles. He's got an estate company. He's got real estate. So these guys, you know, a lot of people look up to him and a lot of business people look up to him and they just want to open any business they can. So if they think they can give me a little bit of money and open these beautiful dealerships that they can take their friends to, that they can brag about, oh, I own a motorcycle dealership. You know, look what I've done. But they didn't want to do the work and they didn't want to provide the money. It was a difficult position. And the first year I dealt with it, going to the second year, it just got even harder to go around and say you own half of four motorcycle dealerships, but you've been to the place three times, as well as you weren't providing the financials that you agreed to do is always going to lead down the same road, which was going our separate ways. Did this put stress on you like personally in your marriage? Not that way, because I think I probably wouldn't have been able to handle it if it wasn't for the marriage. We're such a team. She does all the things I'm not good at. I understand some people probably would have a difficult time opening a business with their wife, but the way my wife and I operate, we give each other respect on the things we're good at. So if it's a daily business decision on how to sell the motorcycle, she's 100% beside me. And if it's a financial decision on what we need to do, I'm 100% besides her. So we both know our roles and we both respect each other. So that way we can always be very supportive and running the business together. So if we didn't put so much of our heart and soul into this business and we weren't there for each other when we needed it, it probably would have been a lot more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. So having that partnership when you move across the country, because I mean, y'all both, I guess, kind of bought into this idea together too. I guess part of me was just thinking, you know, maybe you left your friends and everything else behind in Florida and you came out here thinking everything would be good. And then it's like the exact opposite, it sounds like. There's pros and cons from it. The pros are we spent two years in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica, in a 400 square foot apartment, and that built our relationship. This is one of those situations where my wife and I were either going to be amazing or hate each other. And luckily, it turned out to be amazing, and we got along great. 400 square foot's pretty small. That makes sense. Just like you said, it kind of goes one way or the other where they're resenting you for doing the idea. But if she was like kind of bought into, at least y'all can kind of connect together saying, you know, how messed up the situation is. Yeah, we were 100% in. And even through the sourness of the relationship ended in pretty much one day, we were 100% unhappy, but we're willing to, you know, doing the work. When we got married, we went to Bora Bora on our honeymoon and we were gone for two weeks and we turned our phones off and we had a lot of the business partners did a lot of stuff behind our back while we were gone. Wow. Well, tell us about that. Well, they're a bank, right? So they fund the motorcycles we sell. So if I sell a vehicle, the bank provides the loan for it, right? Well, we had about three or $400,000 in loans that were done while I was out of the country with no phone to come back. I literally turned my phone on when we got to LAX to check our bank account thinking, you know, when I'm in town, we're doing about a million dollars a month in sales. So if I don't buy any new vehicles, there should be a million dollars in my account, essentially. So being out of the country for two weeks, I expected money to be in our account and the exact opposite happened. There was no money in the account. So then I'm like, well, did we not sell anything for two weeks? And then it turns out that they were holding the funds from us, essentially, which forced the split in the relationship. So that's what finally did it in? Yeah, pretty much. And they couldn't legally do that because they're still separate entities. Right, yeah. The bank still owes this business money. But one thing that you're going to have to learn, the law is very loose and it takes a long time. So in the meantime, people can do a lot of stuff illegal or whatever they want. So, you know, you just got to really protect, you know, who you do businesses and partnerships with. The main thing, as awful as that sounds, it really showed us the kind of people they were. You know, we're on our honeymoon and they could have had that phone call a week before we went on our honeymoon. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, because they obviously know you're getting married because you're both in the business together, right? And you both moved to Los Angeles. Correct. They knew we were out of the country and went behind our back to do that. So we quickly got out of that situation and we took ownership over, 
you know, 100% of the floors in store in Florida. Was that easy to get out of though? Again, because you're making it kind of sound like it was pretty easy, and it sounds like maybe if they made your life kind of a hell to an extent that it wouldn't be super easy to get out of this. No, no, it absolutely wasn't easy. We owed them money. They wanted it. We didn't have it. The only way to get that money was to sell the business. They wanted a lot more money than we were willing to give them. But at the end of the day, the one thing I learned, if you're the one who provides the talent, you're the one that has control. For example, in my first relationship with the attorney, he didn't want to sell his shares. So I said, okay, well then I'll just go open another store and not include you because you're not the one who does anything. I'm the one with the talent. So he was put in a position where I either take a bunch of money from this kid or he's just going to leave me behind. So they were in a similar position. They either made a deal with me that made sense or they were stuck with a bunch of debt and motorcycle dealerships that they did not know how to run. So would you have just walked away from all of the dealerships? That's the only thing I guess I'm trying to make sure I understand so we could use the same tactic if we have an issue. No, no, I wouldn't have walked away from it. I owned them. You know, I own half of them. And at this point, the business is worth five, six million dollars. But you tell these guys you're just not going to keep running the business if they don't sell you back these shares or if you get out of this? No, it never got to that point. It was just like when I got back from the honeymoon, I called them I'm like, hey, where's this money? Like, well, we're not happy. I'm like, well, okay, but you have to pay that money. We have payroll. We have things due or the whole business is just going to implode. You know, we're still doing a million dollars a month in sales. Like the business is still running great. It's profitable. And so we just sat in a room and we worked out a deal to basically separate within a day or two. You know, attorneys were involved to kind of protect both interests. You should always have an attorney involved in any type of business transaction you do. It's just a good business advice. I mean, it sounds like, especially obviously if you're dealing with this. So, I mean, how long did it take you to close up these stores or sell them and then get back to Florida? That whole process went pretty fast. And the cool part is, is it sounds like that's the end of the story, but the real growth of the story is the resilience of myself and my wife to not only pay back the half a million dollars in debt, but then move back to Florida and really take these two stores that we had increase the quality and increase the quality of the employees, increase the quality of the product and really put 100% into these two stores and it's paying off big time now. And what year did you move back? 2016, I believe. Okay. So 2016, you moved back. We didn't even talk about like how much personally were you like bringing home during all this? I mean, were you making good money personally? Because again, you said the other guy you were matching, I don't know if he was still working at the Florida stores, but what was like the personal take home like, especially if you have your wife involved? Yeah, no, I mean, a 10% net is kind of the goal in our business. If we're doing a million dollars, we should be making a hundred grand. That's a good average. You know, the thing is when you jump that much, my first two or three years, when I had one store doing a million dollars in sales, I was making a hundred grand. When I had two stores, I was making 200 grand. Well, when I had four stores, I wasn't making $400,000. And that's the part where when we moved back to Florida, we really started getting more into not just growing fast. It's easy to grow fast. You know, this whole process I'm talking about, borrow money, getting partners, building another store, selling, 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 selling. It sounds great. And the revenue goes up, but it doesn't always mean more money in your pocket. And now with the two locations, we have a much better control on what happens and we can take the time to figure out how to tweak a balance sheet. So we're doing less revenue, but more net profit. Right. You decided when you came back, instead of focusing on like a hundred stores, like I guess that was your original kind of goal or vision. Yeah. You said you're going to come back and just optimize your stores, I guess, for net income. Exactly. Well, it's it comes down to there's two different ways to run a business. When you're borrowing money, you have to pay yourself a huge salary, right? You know, like the CEO of Twitter, you know, he makes a dollar a year, but he takes a huge stock options. Like there's always different ways to pay yourself. So when you're growing that fast and maybe your business isn't even making a net profit, you have to take out a big paycheck to, you know, make a living. You know, me and my wife own the business hundred percent now. So it's not just about making a big paycheck today. It's about preserving the business, getting out of debt and making a better experience for our customers. In turn, we sell our product for more money. We built more value and then it creates a better net at the end of the day. 
you said you moved back in 2016 and you said there's two stores, but you had three stores in Florida. So did you end up closing one of those two when you came back? Yeah. One of them was a service center that just provided product for the other two. So when I built the new store in Adamo, I kind of combined those two locations. Okay. So that's what you're saying. Your original Tampa store is the new store and then yeah, you still have the Orlando. It's across the street and it's that's the one I was talking about earlier, the beautiful state-of-the-art, beautiful building. So yeah, tell us a couple of things that you did when you came back to Florida. If you have to also change like employee mindset or anything like that, because again, you said you're going to look at expenses and make sure that you're getting the most money you can as far as out of these dealerships. Another little piece of advice that I have, I've always been in the mindset that I want my employees to feel like they own the place because they have that pride in the business. When I went to California and I hired a lot of people I didn't know, I tried to build that into them. Well, they actually thought they did own the place and it made it very difficult to run the business properly because I would ask them to do something and they were aware that I only own half the business. I'll be like, well, we don't want it like they thought they owned the place legitimately. It was a crazy concept. But when you're that open with your financials and you're that open with your employees, I mean, I worked at other motorcycle shops and I never met the owner. I had five stores in two states and I would talk to every employee once a week, all of them just, to, hey, how's it going? Hey, Bill, how's your family? Great job. I appreciate the hard work. You know, I would do those things. People don't understand the hours and hours and the sacrifice that me and my wife have made and put into the business, this is all behind the scenes stuff to make it a great running company. And it was really hard with, you know, five locations. You're learning constantly. So this whole thing was a learning process. Some people might view it as it ended poorly. Long-term, we learned so much about every aspect of the business. I've been through so much and learned and grown and my wife and the same thing and, and we're not stopping. So it's just continuing that education and trying to make these businesses the best that they can be. If you build it, they will come. I mean, I can tell you, we built this new store. Our product is better. We've hired better employees. We have better training. I'm here every day and we're killing it. I couldn't be more proud of the team, the company, the business, every, everything about it. I'm extremely proud of. We appreciate yeah, you coming on and sharing your story. I don't know if there's any last words of wisdom that you want to leave everyone with here. I think part of the reason I make it sound like it was so easy to go through all this terrible things is because of my wife and that we're there together. So my advice is find a significant other that pushes you to be better, whether she works with you or doesn't work with you. It just allows me... When I was single, I spent 99% of my time trying to, you know, meet women or go through that. And now that I have my wife and we're so happy and successful together, 99% of my time is focused on my business. I think it's just in guys' nature to want to chase women and, you know, get to that process. If you can find the right girl to take that away from you and support you and make you successful, I mean, you'll be surprised at how much more you can accomplish. Well, again, yeah, thanks for coming on. If someone to say thank you for doing the interview, where's the best place for them to reach you? You can find me at mrtrevorvarney.com. Nextride.com is the business if you want to check that out. And then you can hit me up on Facebook or Instagram at Trevor Varney or Trevor at nextride.com. I guess if they're looking for a motorcycle or scooter or anything of that nature in the Orlando, Tampa area, then stop by your store to check it out. Nextride.com. Check me out. Ask for me. I'll give you a $100 gift card to anything in the store. I'll give you a tour. I look forward to earning someone's business. Hopefully they can see what goes into the level of effort that I give just to provide someone with a motorcycle that costs five grand. And hopefully they appreciate, wow, I didn't just show up and buy this. Someone actually worked really hard to provide this experience. Well, thank you for providing this podcast experience and we appreciate you sharing your story, Trevor. Awesome. Thanks, Austin. If you liked this episode, here's some other episodes that you'll enjoy and probably shouldn't be listened to in a family environment. Episode 117 with Peter Kraft of Evo Labs. Episode 86 with Tim Sykes. He's a well-known penny trader. Episode 115 with Mark Lazaric, where he talks about his fireworks and sparklers companies. And episode 83 with Jason Saltzman of Alley Coworking. And well, speaking of favorites... 
Well, we've recently updated some of our older episodes and that got me brainstorming. So if you're new to the show or want to check out some of my other favorite episodes, well then scroll down in your episode feed right now. You'll notice we've thrown in a star emoji at the beginning of some of those episodes. So again, those are some of our favorites overall. Obviously all of them are amazing, but if you're new, you probably want to get started with some of those. And last but not least, if you want to help support the show and get some extra exclusive episodes, don't forget to join our Patreon membership. And again, you can find more information in your episode notes. Oh, 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 oh